All right, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. I'm Peyton Eisner, joined back with new dad, Christian Tadji. Welcome back, Christian. Thanks, Peyton. I'm glad to be back. Awesome. Well, we missed you last week, but we had an awesome episode with first-year Sloane Anna Rutherford and the head of Cuba International, Kristen Nunez. Um, so if you haven't seen that episode or the first one with Dr. Nicholas Ebarth here at Cornell, be sure to check those out. But Christian, another exciting episode today with an, an interesting and, and different type of guest than we've had before. Uh, why don't you introduce him? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Ben. I'm really excited about this episode for two reasons. Uh, first of all, Devin Larson, our guest today, he's only a few years older than, than you and I, Peyton, um, and he's made tremendous progress in his career. Um, and second, we're going to be chatting about private equity, which is an area that we don't talk about very often in our curriculum, but certainly has an increasing footprint in healthcare. So I'm excited to learn about early careerist strategies and techniques and perspectives from Devin, as well as this other part of, of the healthcare ecosystem that I'm not personally quite as familiar with. Um, so just to introduce Devin quickly. So Devin currently serves as president and chief operating officer of Blue Cloud Pediatric Surgery Centers. So Devin is responsible for the overall strategic direction and operations of the company. Um, before becoming president and COO, Devin held multiple other roles at Blue Cloud, including chief operating officer and vice president of business development and sales and marketing. Devin was one of the four founding partners of North End Healthcare, which was acquired by Blue Cloud in 2016 where he served as its chief, chief operating officer. Devin also worked as the administrator of Houston Children's Dental Center and as an orthopedic device rep for Lone Peak Medical. Um, Devin attended Brigham Young University where he studied management, so we have that in common. Um, but that's not all we have in common. Devin is actually my brother-in-law. So, uh, so it's kind of a family affair today on the podcast. Fascinating. We love the, uh, the Tanji extended family over here. Um, absolutely. But I'm excited for this episode. So I think without further ado, let's toss it over to Devin. So now that we've gone through the uh, more formal introduction, Devin, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and path to Blue Cloud and the private equity space more broadly from your own mouth. Yeah, no, thanks for the introduction. Um, I have a bit of a unique path, probably different from many of your classmates at Cornell into healthcare. Um, I wasn't planning on getting into healthcare. I was planning on doing management consulting, private equity, MBA, that whole very traditional route, and had an opportunity to do an unpaid internship with a really brilliant guy named Brian Walker. And I came, I packed up my truck and drove from Provo, Utah to Houston um, spent the night at a Motel 6 somewhere in western Kansas or eastern Colorado, I can't remember, and uh, pulled into Houston, Texas at like 4 o'clock in the morning and was at our Bryan Surgery Center at 7 a.m. the next day. And what ended up happening is I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the entrepreneurial environment of this brand new surgery center that Brian and his partners had started about a year before I, I rolled into town. And I also loved healthcare, but more specifically, the type of healthcare that Brian and his partners were providing focused on the underserved population of Houston, specifically the underserved kids in Houston. And so an opportunity came where Brian needed to step away to pursue um, some academic interests he had. And uh, I was able to take over the company at that point. And what started off 
as an unpaid internship and me kind of going, I mean, what do I have to lose? I could try it. And if it doesn't go well, I'll go back to school. And if it goes well, then I probably won't regret it. And uh, I've been there, you know, for eight and a half years now. And we've, we've grown the company from one little surgery center in Houston to we're now the largest pediatric surgery center company in the country. Very cool. Yeah, that's much more uh, dynamic and interesting than the uh, than the canned introduction a few moments ago. So thanks for walking us through that. Definitely, definitely interesting and a unique path. Um, so would you mind speaking a little bit to, you know, as you as you interact with your peers or or colleagues in other that are not that don't work for in the in private equity or private equity backed companies, kind of the differences in running a company that's backed by private equity versus a company that's not. Yeah, I, I think there are some pretty stark differences in many cases, whether you're comparing it to a Fortune 500 company that's publicly traded and is massive and been around forever, or whether you're comparing it to a young entrepreneurial company. The thing that was a learning curve for me and that I noticed is different as I talked to my um, friends and family members is private equity is just a constant push to achieve results. You know, as an entrepreneur, you want that. You have your own skin in the game. You have the sky's the limit. And also, if it doesn't go well, you're going to pay the consequences for that. But sometimes as an entrepreneur, you don't have that daily pressure. Uh, you can take a week off or you can leave work early. And in private equity, it is. There is a board of directors in Palo Alto or New York City or, or somewhere, and they want to see results every week, every month, every year. And they give you the freedom um, to achieve those results, but they expect to see them. So I think the pressure on management teams and employees in private equity is huge. And often that pressure comes um, without a lot of the benefits that can sometimes happen in large corporate companies or small entrepreneurial companies. So um, I love it. It's a great environment, um, but it certainly isn't for everyone. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. I'm sure that constant, you know, that the board, like you said, in Palo Alto or wherever, holding you accountable always drives performance as well. And I, I can see definitely how that could be a catalyst for, for performance. So from what little I know about private equities in healthcare, I know that PEs gravitate to a few different care delivery settings in healthcare, surgery centers being one of them, dermatology, physician staffing companies. What makes these specific healthcare entities attractive to PEs? Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert in PE investments, but as a general rule of thumb, private equity in healthcare looks for industries that have been successful but are relatively fragmented. So, dermatology, for example, there hadn't been a lot of dermatologists. I mean, there had been some, of course, but not on a huge scale that had come together and leveraged their resources to get scale as they provided that specific type of care. And so private equity will look for, wow, that doctor or that group or that company has an amazing business model. They're killing it. They're doing well, but they're only in upstate New York, you know, using your guys' geography as a reference. And, and when we went and talked to them, they're only in upstate New York because they haven't really had the vision to grow beyond that. Let's give them not only the vision, but the money to do so, right? Or maybe private equity will partner the upstate New York guys with the South Florida guys, and they'll 
you give them the money and vision to combined care from Florida to New York and everything in between. So I think they look for those fragmented industries that have great core business principles and are just operated at too small of a scale. For surgery centers, which is what I know best, um, there are some very sophisticated players in surgery centers. You have USPI, AmSurge. It certainly was decades ago a fragmented industry. It is not as much anymore. That There are obviously independent surgery center owners. But I think surgery centers provide something that's attractive to PE groups, and that's flexibility because of the different types of procedures you can do in a surgery center. So, you know, if you were to invest in an orthopedic group and for some reason you weren't able to hit the results you wanted, you could always bring in an ENT group, right? And there's a lot of diversity, a lot of um, option value in surgery centers. And probably another driving factor for the investment is just the, the general principle of reducing the cost of healthcare. And as you guys know, driving procedures out of hospital ORs and into surgery center ORs, you generally can maintain a very similar standard of care depending on the procedure type, but at a, you know, one third, one fifth, one tenth of the cost of what it is in a hospital. So that's pretty attractive to PE, you know, that sales pitch to payers and um, healthcare systems out there that, hey, we're gonna save you money and we're gonna scale this. Yeah, interesting perspective that, yeah, PE provides vision and scale for these smaller entities that just don't have those resources or foresight to do so. Definitely, definitely see that. Um, that's not to say also that some are, are critical of, of private equity and healthcare as well. I, you know, in anticipation of our call, I actually was doing some reading and I found a Bloomberg article. Um, it was published about four months ago entitled How Private Equity is Ruining American Healthcare. Um, so just to pull one quote from the article that I'd love you to respond to, um, it says, quote, some doctors say that pri the private equity playbook, which involves buying companies, drastically cutting costs, and then selling for a profit, the goal is generally to make an annualized return of 20 to 30% within three to five years, creates problems that are unique to healthcare. I know private equity does this in other industry, but in medicine, you're dealing with people's health and their lives, says Michael Raines, a doctor who worked at U.S. Dermatology Partners a big private equity back chain. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve patients and investors. Um, so kind of, would you mind just responding or, or, or how would you respond to Dr. Rain's comment? Yeah, I mean, I think if I was sitting with Dr. Rain, I would go, I agree with a lot of what you said. There are horror stories out there of financial investors who don't appreciate the patient care element of what we do in healthcare. And it's all about the bottom line, all about driving, you know, multiples and EBITDA, but I would also push back pretty hard. Yes, there are horror stories out there. There are bad investors. There are bad groups who made poor decisions that have affected patients. I am aware of many more that have added immense value and improved patient care than I am aware of those that have done the opposite. Specifically in our company, let me give you an example. Norwest Venture Partners is the PE firm that invested in our company. They, the investor that led the investment is a physician himself, and the other partners in the healthcare team are also physicians. And from day one, there has been an immense amount of focus on patient care. I can tell you objectively that did they write a check to help us grow? Yes. 
do they want to see the bottom line at certain metrics monthly, annually? Do they want to return in three to five years? Yes to all of those things. But that doesn't mean it's mutually exclusive of patient care. Our patient care has improved so much under this PE investment because they've given us the tools, the financial backing, the connections, the expertise, the vision to go, wow, there's, there's a better way of doing this from a patient care standpoint. And, and the other thing I would push back on is our service provides care to low-income children insured on Medicaid. So that's just our company. And that is a desperate need in many communities throughout the United States that is not being met by physicians or private investors. And so their investment in our company has allowed us to expand access to care in cities and states where there was nothing. Give an example. We went to Florida. We never would have gone to Florida without financial backing ever. It's too expensive. It's too hard. It takes too long. Um, and we treat thousands and thousands of children who were waiting on 18-month wait lists to get care in hospitals or in residency programs, outpatient centers. So yes, PE can have a negative effect on healthcare, but it can also improve the quality, expand access, and the drive to do things efficiently to cut costs oftentimes is something we desperately need in healthcare. We spend too much money in too many areas and justify that laziness in the name of patient care. Cutting costs without compromising care is something that needs to happen at every level in American healthcare. And if it's done by the right people with the right focus, it's an absolute plus. And some people, they hate it because it takes away some of the fluffy perks they're used to. You know, you don't need marble floors and fish tanks in the doctor's office to provide great patient care. And that's kind of our philosophy. No, that's great. And I'm sure that answer will resonate with our listeners as well. All of us have different reasons for getting into healthcare, and they mostly center around like delivering patient care, even in an indirect manner. And I love that perspective of PE um, using those resources to improve quality and access at the bottom, at the end of the day. So uh, considering that that answer will likely resonate with many of our listeners, would you mind just speaking to advice to students that are looking to break into this space? I mean, I love healthcare. Um, there are few, few industries that I think can bring more gratification in the work you do than working in healthcare. And that can come in many different levels, right? Whether it's healthcare services and it's direct patient care, whether it's behind the scenes and ancillary services that facilitate, you know, um, helping physicians do their jobs better, um, helping patients access more information so they can make informed decisions, whatever the case may be, it's so gratifying. It's so important. I mean, when you look at the, the needs of individuals, whether they are high net worth individuals or low income families, their common need is good health care. And I, I would encourage people, you know, students who are getting a great education like you guys are at Cornell, really think about um, what type of health care you're getting, you're getting into. It's really, really fun to go work and play with all the cool toys and the really fun inventions. But oftentimes those things are really expensive. 
and it's not improving access to care for the large vast majority of Americans. It might improve access to care for the few people that can afford it. I think it is really, really fun to tackle the three-pronged problem in healthcare, which is improving quality, expanding access, and reducing costs. And if you find a company that is legitimately trying to do that and not just giving lip service to it, that's a company you should take a really strong look at because those are the companies that are changing healthcare. The iron triangle. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, Devin, I wanna jump in with one question before we move towards the, the end section. I know for a lot of patients, they can be skeptical about uh, for-profit hospitals, those sorts of things, feeling like they're less of a patient, more of a revenue generator. Uh, do you run into any, in private equity-backed firms, uh, do you run into any of that kind of PR pushback? And if so, how do you, how do you handle that if, if it does exist? Yeah, I would say in, in most PE-backed companies, there is a desire um, to make it feel as normal as possible. You're not advertising you're a PE-backed institution, right? You're not advertising you're for-profit. So the, the average American consumer of healthcare likely isn't picking up on that. Um, and not that it's a secret at all. Um, uh, if someone was concerned about that, if someone came to me and said, hey, I'm concerned that you're for-profit and it's gonna affect you know, the care I receive or the way you approach doing your business. I think there's some pretty easy answers to that. Um, what has been your experience receiving care in not-for-profit uh, facilities compared to for-profit facilities? A lot of people won't have a frame of reference for that. I think I would say compare it to government entities that are essentially not-for-profit therefore have no incentive to provide the best quality of work possible because they don't care if they lose a customer or they gain one. They're getting paid the same and they don't have any metrics or accountability. Uh, and that's not meant as a pot shot at anyone specifically, but I would say for profit, there is a lot of pressure to be excellent because you have to compete and we don't have enough competition in healthcare. Large systems come into markets, they monopolize the market, they vertically integrate, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but then they don't have to compete against anyone. We need more price transparency in healthcare. I think it would help there be more competition amongst for-profit entities that would drive better patient outcomes. The, the average American consumer of healthcare nowadays is too educated it's too easy to spread your opinion, to post a bad review, to attack a doctor. You have to be excellent. I mean, even in the eight years that I've been in this business, we've had to completely shift how we approach the patient's perspective and the feedback that the patient provides to their immediate community amongst their friends and family, but also to the general community on web reviews, et cetera. I would hesitate to receive healthcare in a not-for-profit setting. I would wonder, are they really trying to be the best that they can be, or are they just sitting there knowing we have a total monopoly and no one's going to go anywhere else? We're the only option. Yeah, I think you raised a, a fantastic point and, and a different perspective than even I've personally thought about. That continued drive for excellence, I think that's what makes the market and the economy work. And um, I think dri striving and, and pushing towards excellence is, is, an, is a valuable uh, a skill and, and something to learn. 
kind of taking that as a transition into the final part of this podcast um, and looking at the difference between education and then transferring the skills learned into a workplace environment. What do you think something critical is that, that students like myself and Christian and other MHA or MPH or MBA students won't learn in a classroom? Oh, good question. Having never been in a Cornell classroom, I'm sure you're learning a lot. Um, and I would love to do that one day. But I, I would say um, it's impossible to learn in a classroom the human element to healthcare services. And what do I mean by that? You, you can learn business models, you can learn regulatory concerns, you can study um, medical ethics, you can do all of those things, but you don't usually talk about what is it like to sit across the table from a single mother of four who's uninsured and whose child needs surgery now and she doesn't speak English and she's worried her, she's gonna see her kid again. You don't talk about that in the classroom a lot. And as you guys enter the workforce and if you go into healthcare services where you're providing direct patient care, that's a huge deal, the ability to be empathetic for these patients and their parents or their caregivers, because it's your day to day. It, whether you're in the administrative side or whether you're the physician, it becomes routine and it becomes a job and it is boring some days and fulfilling others. But you have to remember that for most of these patients, it's a first or it's very nerve wracking or very stressful. And, whether you're working with pediatrics or whether you're in geriatric care and you're talking to a caregiver, the ability to empathize, ask questions and guide a patient through the process is a huge deal. Um, one that's important for a physician to understand or you know, your patient service coordinator sitting at the receptionist desk. Um, and I think that's a big deal. The, the second thing I would say is the, the ability to manage your own ego and the egos of everyone else in a facility. Healthcare services is fascinating because it is so divided in some ways between the nurses, the physicians, the administrative staff, you know, corporate, whatever the case may be, yet it may be an environment that requires more teamwork than most industries I'm aware of. And so as future leaders in healthcare, the ability to lead out empathetically and also manage multiple personalities with various levels of education, all for the good of the patient, is a huge deal. Awesome. So Devin, thank you so much for joining us. We seriously have enjoyed this conversation and to shed light on a, on a, on a piece of the healthcare ecosystem that we don't know very much about. Um, and we always ask our, our guests the same question to finish all of our podcasts. And it's, it's a little bit similar to the last question we asked. Well, let's tailor it specifically to healthcare leaders. What tool do you recommend the next generation of healthcare leaders add to their toolkit? Um, I think the ability to think um, creatively, I mean, we could use the word innovatively, it's cliche now, but to think creatively about business models within healthcare. I think that is an important tool for the future leaders of healthcare to learn because 
it's the only thing I think that is going to allow us to tackle the, as you said earlier, Chris, the iron triangle. It's hard to expand access, improve quality, and reduce costs if you just do it through the, the traditional way of thinking. You know, everything is getting more expensive nowadays, and it requires business model innovation to, I think, hit on all three of those things. Um, Regina Herslinger is a fantastic resource that I think everyone should study her work. And she talks a lot about the need for business model in innovation in healthcare in order for us to accomplish the uh, three-pronged approach that we all want to. So as you're coming out of school, going into the workforce, I think it's important to remember you're allowed to be creative in healthcare even if the policies and some of the old timers who are amazing, but haven't tried to be creative in a long time, tell you, you can't be. I think that's great advice. And uh, Devin, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today. I think you've given us all a lot to think about and a lot to consider when it comes to this side of healthcare that many of us haven't thought about. Great, thanks guys. Good talking to you. Absolutely. And for those who are curious about Blue Cloud, Pediatric Surgery Centers, I will put a link to their website in the show notes page, but hope you guys will join us back here for future episodes of Health Conscious.